So there's always somebody kicking around, you know, when we do a series like this, who likes to be a smart aleck. And uh, so somebody wrote in a bunch of burning questions for me, and you wrote them in, so I'm going to answer them. Okay, so um, have you ever repented before God for the mullet that you held on to into the 21st century? Yes, in sackcloth and ashes. But what goes around comes around, and someday when the mullet comes back in again, I will rock it one more time. Okay. Why do you hate cats? Because I'm allergic and I don't like animals that think they're God. Okay. Um, what's your favorite TV show? The Bachelor. <laughs> Freak some of you out. Actually, I like this show, Storage Wars. Does anybody else watch that? It's a great show. I love that show. Okay. Why do you cry so much? <laughs> I don't know. I think it has something to do with the sad state of sports in Washington State. Okay, all right. Who are your heroes? Jesus, Jim Scobie, Bob Dunlop, and my wife. Those are my top four right there. Is your office really as clean as you claim? Watch the video from the Midweek Connection last week, and I will prove to you that God loves everything in its place. That's just right. Okay. So if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and uh, listen online to get part one of the question, because if you separate last week from this week, it could be a little bit confusing. I'll try to draw some parallels between the two weeks. Last week, we talked about the origin of suffering and where that really comes from and and why it's so difficult for people to wrap their, their hearts around this whole idea of pain. And underneath of that stream of questions was a whole other stream that came in, literally by the hundreds. And the questions are kind of embodied in these questions. Why do innocent children suffer abuse? What what about natural disasters? What do we do with that? What what about children who are born with birth defects? What about, why is there a famine in a certain part of the world? Those kinds of questions. Well, the core question underneath of those questions is this question. Is God really good I mean, is he really good? We say that as Christians, but is he really good? And if God is loving and all-powerful and in meticulous control of everything, why do so many terrible things happen in the world that he's in charge of? And how do we reconcile those things? Well, this week, we're going to deal with the question of theodicy, okay? Theos, meaning God. Dikeo, meaning righteous, just, and loving, okay? Is God loving? Is God good? All right? I use some fancy Greek words there so you can think we're all way smarter than we actually are at Christ the King, right? But is God really good? Is he just? Let's walk through some answers. Isaiah chapter 55 is an amazing chapter. It's known for a famous statement that you can summarize with these words. It's the first chunk in your outline. God is God and we are not, okay? The people get that from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where the Bible says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, if you just read those verses by themselves, it kind of sounds like God has the same reasoning that our parents used to have, you know? When they didn't have a real good reason for something, it basically went like this. Oh, yeah, well, you're going to do it because I said so. Because I'm your parent and you're not, okay? And that verse can read like that if you don't read the whole first part of the chapter of Isaiah 55. If you miss the first seven verses, verse 8 and 9 doesn't make sense. In fact, verses 8 and 9 are meant to be a reassurance to us that God's bigger than we are. 
God's smarter than we are. God understands more than we do. It's to be a reassurance, not to discourage us. And if you read the first part of Isaiah 55, you miss out on this beautiful part where God says, look, I I want you to come to me. I want you to come and be refreshed. I want you to come and ask your questions. I want you to come and struggle. I want you to come and drink. That's what he says. I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan, and in his book, The Silver Chair, Jill, the little girl, has a relationship with the lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus Christ. She first meets him at at a stream where he's standing, and, and he's huge, and he's menacing, and he's intimidating, and this is the conversation that happens. Are you thirsty? asked the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? asked Jill. The lion answered this with only a look and a very low growl. Will, will, you, will you promise not, not to do anything to me, Jill asked, if I come? I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty by now without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do, do you eat little girls? I've swallowed up girls, boys, women, men, kings, emperors, cities, and realms, said the lion. And he didn't say it as if he were boasting, or as if he were sorry, or if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill, then you you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. We started this series saying that unless we have an abiding conviction at the base of our question, that we're just going to be asking questions for question's sake, at the basis of this question this week is this deep abiding conviction that the Lion of Judah is good. And that he wants us to come and drink and participate. As the people of God, we hold to the conviction that God is God and we are not, and that he wants to give us life. We acknowledge the fact that we lack understanding, but that God is so unbelievably good. And that's an answer to theodicy. Is God good? Yes, because He's God and we're not. Secondly, another answer is that man has been granted the ability to make genuine choices. Joshua 24, 15 has a choice. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose for you yourselves this day whom you will serve. Proverbs 14 talks about a decision we get to make. It says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. I mean, here's what Scripture teaches. That man is created in the image of God with a mind and a will and emotions and a freedom to choose. And last week we talked about just just the obvious fact that a lot of pain and suffering has come about because of the freedom God gave us to choose. But all through Scripture, God is highly committed to that. Let me tell you why. Because God wants to be chosen. He wants you to choose to be in a relationship with Him. He doesn't want you to be a mindless minion, you know? He doesn't want you to be that little yellow thing that runs around, oh, despicable me, you know? It's not what He's looking for. He's looking for you to have a choice, and He wants you to choose Him and the holiness that He represents. It was a crazy thought when God gave people choice. 
John Eldridge, in his book, Wild at Heart, said this. He said, I know some couples who've decided against having children altogether. They simply aren't willing to chance the heartache that children often bring. What if they're born with a crippling disease? What if they turn their backs on us and God? What if God seems to fly in the face of all caution, even though he knew what would happen, what heartbreak and suffering and devastation would follow upon our disobedience, God still chose to have kids. And unlike some hyper-controlling parent who take away every element of choice they can from their children, God gave us a remarkable choice. He didn't make Adam and Eve obey him. He took a risk, a staggering risk with staggering consequences. He allowed us into his story. And he lets our choices shape it profoundly. I mean, whether we understand it or not, God allowed man to make choices and he will not force himself over top of your choice. He will not overrule you. He could because he's God. Don't forget the first part, but he doesn't. I mean, many of us would question his reason. Why would God allow us to have choices? I want you to remember, if he'd not allow you to have to make a choice, you wouldn't have the decision whether or not you even got to ask that question or not. He welcomes you into that process, desperately wanting you to believe that he's good. And that's why he gave you that freedom. There's a couple of answers to the the question of theodicy. Is God really good? But there's some barriers, right? The barriers are actually answers too. I listed them in your program. What keeps us from believing that God is good? Well, the first one is that sin is destructive. The Bible says the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Right up until the present time. I mean, this is where it really hits it, right? The sin of abuse. The sin of neglect, the sin of omission, all of those sins kind of corrode our belief in God's justice, even though the source of abuse and neglect and omission, the source of that are the evil choices of people, not God. Let's make sure we put this stuff in the right place. Thirdly, actually number four in your list there, another reason why it's hard to believe sometimes that God is good is that Satan is bent on destroying everything that already is good. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's pretty clear, right? 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. He's an imposter, seeking whom he may devour. He's a destroyer. I mean, one answer to the Odyssey is that Satan is alive and well and on a mission to destroy everything that is good. Let me give you three more little pieces here that that are all difficult unless you wrap them all together. One thing that makes believing that God is good is, is the fact that perspective is challenging. I mean, it's hard to see that God is loving and good when you're in pain. The people of Israel stumble through the wilderness, holding on to a single solitary promise that God has a better land for them. I'm sure there were times in the four decades that they stumbled around in the darkness. By there, I'm sure there were moments when they just said, I, I don't know how God is good in this. Moses had to keep reminding them. He said, there's a purpose in this. There's a plan in this. I want you to keep focusing, people of Israel, on the fact that God is good and he is going to keep his promise. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is so concerned that they're going to forget about the fingerprints of God that he actually says, when you get to this promised land, to this beautiful place, I need you to do something for me. Don't forget how good God was on the journey. In fact, he actually, if you read Deuteronomy 8, it's an amazing little passage because it actually says out loud, God was so meticulously in control of your journey that over four decades, he never let your feet swell. It's pretty meticulous. And then he says this, he goes, he led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble you and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability I mean, let's just face it. Perspective is challenging. When, when, when pain is right here, it's really hard to see that God is good. And it's hard and it's challenging because reasons are often hard to find in the immediate. That's the next blank there. Reasons are hard to find in the immediate. Psalm 30 verse 5 reminds us, weeping remains for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. What that means is the nights are still really, really hard. Pastor Dave Browning, who preached here a couple weeks ago for me, he wrote a beautiful little piece on theodicy. Is God good? And he said this, and I quote, events are part of a larger timeline and we need to see the bigger picture, not just the frame to understand what God is working out. The human brain is constructed in such a way that it actually processes information in narrative form. It's hard to see how anything is meaningful unless you connect it to a bigger story that comes from the past, the present, and the future. Let me tell you why that's so hard, why reason, reasons are so hard. It's because God's activity is not really apparent and not always immediately apparent right in, in what we're facing. Genesis 50. I love this passage of Scripture. Genesis 50 tells the story of Joseph. His brothers set him up to murder him. They hated their little brother. But they actually chicken out at the last moment and, and, and Joseph gets thrown into a pit. Let me tell you something. It's hard to believe God is good when you're at the bottom of a hole. It's just reality, right? He's at the bottom of a pit. When they finally drag him out, he thinks they've changed their mind, but instead they sell him to a group of Egyptian merchants and he gets shipped off to a foreign country, an enemy country. Joseph rises up through the ranks and he actually becomes an Egyptian prince. That's good, right? Easy to get the good in that part. Back home, when Joseph becomes a prince in Egypt, his family is starving because there's a famine there. Why is there a famine? I have no idea. But there's a famine, and his brothers come looking for food. And guess where they go? They're so desperate, they actually go to an enemy country looking for a source of food. And guess who they run into? Who's in charge of all of the food in Egypt? Joseph. It took years. But the hand of God was there. When you're in the pit, it's hard to see the hand of God. When you're getting sold into slavery, it's hard to see the hand of God. But the hand of God is still orchestrating and moving and pulling together. I'm sure the same guy who said, God, where are you when he was in the bottom of a pit? Well, he wrote these words in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, speaking to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. The saving of many, many lives. 
See, when you get far enough away from it, it's easier to see the reasons. When you can pull back, it's easier to see the fingerprints of God, but it's a challenge to be there. You know, the hardest part of our lives is that we have to separate stuff out. It's hard to see the combination. Okay, I don't like cheesy illustrations. So, like, don't send me emails with Christian cats in them, because I'm just going to delete them anyway. But I don't like cheesy Christian stuff, but this is the best I could do to try and make sense of this. So, let me throw something at you. So, my friend Alan's down here in the front row, okay? And and let's just say, I'm not going to ask him to do anything, but let's just say that I walk up to Alan one day and say, okay, buddy, here's what I need you to do. I need you to choke down a cup of butter, just suck it down, okay? Like, make it go away. And then I need you to follow that by a couple of things of powder. Just eat the powder. You know, hopefully the butter will help get it down. And then if that, if that doesn't choke you completely, you know, we'll throw an egg in on top of it because that should at least help lubricate the throat part of, you know, what you're going to do. But then I, I need three more cups of flour. I need you to choke all that down. Just, just pour it in, and then we'll give you a one-cup vegetable oil chaser, Okay. Like, that's what I want you to do. I just need you to suck down these ingredients, do the best you can, and then just kind of like shake it around. And Don't let that be the only thing you remember from this morning. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars. Okay, so, um, but let's say I asked him to be able to do that. And you're like, Why? Why would you ask me to choke down all of this stuff? I mean, when I separate it out, it's just, it's kind of, it's gross. It's hard to see. Why would anybody just sit there and ingest flour? Here's the reality. This is this. Isn't it? Hate to tell you, but that's that. And we're just like, give me that. I'll take a double of that with ice cream. I mean, that is good. Can't we just move to the good stuff? Let's go straight to the chocolate stuff on the edge. But that's not life. This is how life goes, right? You get a little piece at a time, and sometimes it's hard to see. What in the world is God doing? He's making something good. Even when it appears not so good. Some of you are like, I like butter. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's another sermon. Okay, so. You know, we, we just gravitate towards this, but the reality is this is in there. And I want to remind you of something else. Until this stuff gets really, really mixed together and gets completely poured out, and then has to endure 350 degrees, you can't make that into that. And there's a little bit of suffering that goes to producing that, but that's what holds us. When Laurel's brother Alan died in his early 40s, I had a really hard time making sense of that. What's a young 40-year-old friend of mine doing dying when he's got two young kids, Jason and Tanya, my niece and nephew? We asked some hard questions. We punched some dashboards really, really hard trying to figure out what in the world is God doing? It helped after the funeral, standing in the reception line. I lost count of the number of people, doctors, nurses, people who worked at the hospital that came up and said, I met Jesus because of Alan. 
your brother, when he was in so much pain, he led me to Jesus Christ, and I started a relationship with him because I watched him never lose his faith, even though he was hurting brutally. Did that take the pain away? No. I went home last night, and Laurel's going through some old boxes, and the tears are just pouring down her face. Do we miss Alan? You have no idea. It's like the big brother everybody dreamed of. But does it make it a little easier knowing that God even took the tragedy of his death to create new life so that many lives were saved because of him? You know, we got to see an amazing picture of this. This is past Monday. Some of you aren't missing it right now, but I'm missing something. I'm missing Malcolm's amen. Malcolm Armerding was a 22-year-old young man who came to this church. He spent his entire life lying, not sitting, but lying in a wheelchair. And in the back corner, every once in a while, I would hear a sound that went, ah. that was Malcolm's amen. When you guys left me hanging, Malcolm never left me hanging once. He had an amen for everything. I will so miss Some people would ask the question about Malcolm's life because Malcolm's life was different. You separate out Malcolm's life, there are a lot of challenges and and pain and hurt. But I know one of the purposes for Malcolm's life, it was to gather a whole pack of people here on Monday to gather around each other and cry and weep knowing that we miss Malcolm, but that Malcolm is completely whole today. And everybody at that funeral said exactly the same thing. Malcolm taught me how to live better. In the way Malcolm lived his life, he taught me that I need to make my life count. Scripture says this. Scripture says all things work together for good. Now, some of us stop there, right? I hate to tell you this, that verse doesn't stop there. In fact, that verse gets very, very specific. It doesn't say all things work together for good for everybody. Wouldn't it be nice if it did, but it doesn't say that. That's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, which means if you don't love God and are not called according to his purpose, you're going to end up with a whole lot of this stuff and you may never get here. Come on, pastor, tell us the truth, right? Does that make sense? That verse is very specific. If you love God and believe that he loves you, God is working everything. If you don't believe me, go to a Christian funeral sometime. Christians mess up funerals really, really bad, but it's awesome because we're the ones to actually sit there and go, the reason that we are grieving but with hope is because we actually know where that guy is. Malcolm left us no question how much he loved Jesus. In fact, I'm a little envious. Malcolm beat me home. Must be able to run really, really well. So to those of you who love God and believe that God loves you and are called according to his purpose, the assurance that you have is that somehow, some way, while you're working your way through this stuff, that God is taking you to a much better Here's the final little piece in your outline. Not all of our questions are going to get answered here, but they're going to get answered. 
Matthew 5, Jesus said this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in Bellingham where you live. Great is your reward in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a temporal glory that seems absolutely difficult to bear. Is that what it says? Mm-mm. Light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Someday, when we get there, it's going to make sense. You know, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to hear a lot of this statement. Oh, now I get it. Now I understand. You know, if the Bible didn't talk about this topic at all, it would probably cause me to stumble and struggle. In fact, the Bible talks about the tension of the question, is God really good with a real person in a real life? The Bible says Jesus himself is heading to a place where this burning question about God's love in the middle of pain is going to be answered. And we can never forget Jesus knows what's coming. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows it's going to look like God is gone, that he's been abandoned. He knows it's going to look for at least three days that evil has won. He knows that this whole process for him is going to feel agonizingly bad. And yet he lives out these answers that we've talked about today in real life and real time. Scripture says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. One of the great temptations that we all face is to believe that in the darkest moments of our life that God is gone. You know where we hear that from? We hear that from the devil. I want to remind you he's a liar. He'll just tell you, God's out of here. He left a long time ago. What are you doing crying out to somebody who doesn't care? That's a lie from the enemy. A great temptation following that type of of stuff is, is, is the temptation to disconnect, to pull away from God instead of to step into him. I mean, Jesus is right there in that moment. He's praying for a plan B. Have you ever been there? Saying, God, I'm I'm stuck right here. I need a plan B, another, I need another option. And Jesus follows that up with so incredibly powerful, significant words. He says this God, I acknowledge your will is going to be done because you are God. I want us to get this, okay? The universe was designed for God's will to be done, not ours. It's a tough one to get an amen with. Tough. This universe was designed to accomplish God's will, not ours. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't take a step away knowing what's coming. He takes a step closer because he prays to Abba, Daddy. Dad, this is going to hurt. But Dad, I know you love me and you're going to walk with me through this. Dad, I know you're going to use this suffering 
so that people remember that you are loved. So I'm going to trust you. I know the enemy wants to ruin me, but I know this for sure. The reason all of this is happening, as we get ready for Easter, the reason all of this is going to happen is because you love your people and you are good. And I know God, good is going to come out of this even though I can't see it right now because everything's right in front of my face. And I know that you loving this way is a huge risk. I know that your justice is not immediately apparent. In fact, for three days, it's going to look very convincingly like evil one. But on Sunday, everyone will know that you are loved and just and right and good. They may just have to wait for a while to see it. That love took Jesus to the cross for me and you. Remember what we talked about last week at the end? We talked about the fact that, that the reason why God doesn't just make evil and suffering stop. You remember the reason why? Us. Because he's waiting for just one more. Because he cares and loves that much. He is so motivated. He is willing to allow us to stay here while he's working out that. Please understand, I'm not trying to compare Jesus to chocolate Costco cake. Okay? But the reality is some of us, we we really get stuck here. And this is where the question gets asked, right? Is God good? The Bible says he is. In fact, Daniel Meyer put it this way. I'll say this and then we're done. Dare we believe that we are held by hands of love so large that the dark valleys we experience are merely hollows in the fingerprints of a God who's still at work for our good? What if your worst moment was just a divot in a fingerprint? And the fingerprint belonged to a God that you are absolutely convinced is good and right and just. You know, we've been asking God a lot of burning questions for the last couple of weeks, and I was only going to do three or four weeks on this, but your questions have been so overwhelming, and we're going to keep going for a while. I'll just keep trying to knock as many out as we can. But I think turnabout's fair play, right? So if we have burning questions for God, it would only be fair that he would get to ask us a question as well. So for this week, here's God's burning question for you. Will the question of theodicy be a bridge or barrier to a God who truly loves you? Are you going to get stuck in that question or are you going to move to a place of conviction that brings with it hope and peace and joy in the midst of pain? A barrier or a bridge. Here's what's cool. You get to choose which one you're going to allow it to be. You know where your choice comes from? God. You know why you've got it? Because he's really good. And maybe we should be grateful. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, it doesn't make sense to me sometimes why you give us choices because I've used a large part of my life making the wrong choice. I thank you that with that freedom to choose also comes with 
brings with it forgiveness and hope. So Lord, as we walk out today, I pray that we would understand that to the world around us, the greatest answer of theodicy is actually us. Father, how could they ever hope to believe that God is good unless we're willing to love them on his behalf? So Lord, I pray that out of this week would come a deep motivation inside of our hearts to love deeper. To love those who feel completely unloved. To love those who feel forgotten. To love those who really, really wonder every day, could God really be good? Father, may we be the proof they're looking for this week. Lord, give us the courage to to walk through the difficult stuff that that we have a hard time seeing your fingerprints on. Lord, help us to look at the bigger picture and not just get stuck looking at the frame. Father, help us to truly believe in our hearts that you are God. And we are not. And that's good. We love you today. We choose you today. And we give you all praise and all God's people said.